welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, starring Jerry Springer with Gene Galvin and me, I am Maria Corelli. We are recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience here in Folk School Coffee Parlor of Ludlow, Kentucky. Now here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Judge Jerry Springer! Thank you! Thank you! Oh, wow. I thought I'd wear the same shirt I wore last week. Now there you go. And uh, you heard my voice instead of Maria's uh, the yes. night we were recording this. We had to uh, move the date around and uh, put it in conflict with another obligation that Maria Corelli had. So uh, she's our third member of our broadcast team, and she'll be with us the next time. But I just wanted to explain that. Do you remember, Jerry, gosh, it's been, I believe, two years ago, 2017. Yeah. I do a lot of cycling, uh, bike bicycling so as opposed to motorcycling so I was riding on a thing called the Ohio to Erie Trail which is a rails to trails wonderful trail there are rails to trails projects all across America I was on one and I was outside it's actually sort of a side trail that runs back onto the Ohio to Erie Trail near a place called Yellow Springs Ohio wonderful little college town Antioch College is there and I saw a guy camped on the side of the trail and uh, it had rained hard the night before, and I'd stayed in a, a hotel with my wife up in uh, Yellow Springs. And, and his bike was all packed with gear, and you could tell he was a distance rider. And I always know that every time you see one of those cyclists, they've got a story. Like, yeah. where the heck are you coming from, and where are you going? And I stopped and talked to him. And he said, uh, I'm from, uh, I'm not mistaken, Montreal. I believe it was, yeah. and No, it's Canada. I think it was Montreal, Canada. And I said, wow, that's pretty darn far from here. We're talking Ohio, southern Ohio right. at that point. Where are you headed? And he said, to the uh, tip of the earth. I said, wait a minute. The bottom of Argentina, Tierra del Fuego, the... Yeah. Uh, f- uh, land of fire, yes. which is right at the tip of Argentina. So you're riding to the to Argentina on a he, bike, on a, a bike, yeah, and carrying what he needed with him. And Thank he God said, it's downhill. Yeah, I, yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I couldn't believe this. So uh, one thing is, is I said, you know, I got a lot of backpack gear, and I, I, I had a tent that was uh, a tent that I'd used a few times. It looked uh, better than the one he was using, which is not yeah. a bad tent. But I offered it to him, and I sent it to him down in uh, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, to a bike shop, alerted him. Name is Jerome Paulette, and he stopped by there, picked up the tent, thanked me profusely, emailed, sent some pictures of the tent, moved on. Two years later, a few days ago, I get an email from Jerome. Where is he now? He's in uh, Peru, Caraz, Peru, C-A-R-A-Z, Caraz, Peru, and still headed for the end of Argentina. Wow. So we've got him on the air. Jerome, are you there? I am. I am. All right, it's here for Jerome. Correct. Oh, my God. The first question is, how the hell many miles have you ridden to today? And was I right? Montreal, Canada? Is that where you came from? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's correct. Um, in kilometers, it's 14,000. In miles, I, I didn't do the translation. 14,000 miles? Kilo- kilometers. 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 So yeah. it's going to be kilometers, less than that. Kilometers. 
But I would say 14,000 kilometers is, is probably 11,000 miles or, yeah. I don't know, something like thousands of miles. Yeah. Uh, Jerome, boy, there's like two or yeah. three or four questions that come up. One is, uh, are you still on the same bike that I saw you on? <laughs> yeah, still on the same bike. Has it, has it broken down at all? I mean, it, when you make such a trip, are you Not spending... A- no, not at all. It's it's a very soft bicycle. It's not meant for tours, but it's really a rough one, and it, it endures all sorts of roads. And Have, I'm really glad I, I got it. Are there any? Are you going to be writing a book about this, about your trip, about your experiences? Or have there been like any really scary incidents that happened, or places that you were biking and? and when you thought about it later, maybe I shouldn't have ridden the bike over there? Because I just sent a, a manuscript to a few editors. But yeah, I, I had uh, some scary encounters in Mexico. For example, I, I met some uh, cardinal guys when I was in uh, um, Tamaulipas State in the north. Wow, cartel guys. So you're talking about drug lords. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, well, I didn't ask them if they were what kind of uh, cartel things, cartel branch they were in, but I assume so. <laughs> wow! Yeah. Oh, and did they threaten you at all, or or did you just not? Not at all. I, I met a guy in Louisiana, a guy called Walt, and he was pretty much the only guy who wasn't scaring me off uh, uh, about going to Mexico. He said, "If maybe you'll meet cartel guy." Wow. Oh. And sure enough, if uh, how uh, so have you been on the road, Jerome, for the last couple years since I saw you last or have you taken flights back to Canada or has this been a continuous journey? It's a continuous journey. So I've uh, been on and off the road, uh, volunteering, uh, stopping for work and uh, or getting some rest. So let, let, that, that's a piece Jerry and I were curious about before we uh, started the program. You, there have been stops you've made, and I know you made one uh, for a hurricane, I believe it was in Texas, and you just stopped for about a month and volunteered. So you have done that. You've also s- done some work so that you can sustain yourself and have enough money to make the journey? Uh, yeah, yeah. Stopped uh, four months in Texas, two months in Houston, two months in uh, Aransas Pass. Okay. And then I volunteered again in Mexico uh, after the earthquake in um, Morelos State. I started working in uh, in Panama because I needed money, so I bought a laptop and I, I went back to doing uh, French voiceover. And uh, I was lucky to find a few a few gigs. So that, that's cool. I remember you do uh, French voiceover. That's the work you do. Or, uh, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's his job. Ju- yeah. Right. And you can, uh, oh, th- this, is a, this is really a heck of a story. Uh, do you expect to, you've always told me in the times we've talked that it is your goal to reach the tip of the, of the earth, and, uh, but you make no promises. You even said that in an email to me the other day. So, uh you're realistic about how hard this is. And you say that you told me in that email that the roads you're on in Peru right now are some of the roughest you've been on. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct. They, they throw everything at you, everything. that when, when going down is as hard as climbing, you know you're on, on some sort of uh, bad road. 
Yeah. And uh, when do you think you'll be in Tierra del Fuego? Do you, what's your guesstimate? Uh, my goal is to get there for December or January next year because it's going to be summer down there. And uh, I heard winter is the rest of the year is pretty ruthless and there's a lot of wind and it's cold. And the geography of this, you're in Peru, you're about a third of the way down the down Peru as you look at Peru north to south. And then you've got a mm-hmm. choice. You could go through Chile or you could go all the way down through Argentina. Which one are you going to do? Um, right now, my plan is to detour a little bit by uh, Bolivia. I want to cross by Lago Titicaca, right. which is a very impressive place, I think. And a couple of things I'd like to visit in Bolivia and then go back down to Chile until probably the last road that crosses the, the Andes. Or maybe is, even take a ferry or something. It's an unbelievable story. Yeah. Is it is it possible to make the trip you're talking about by just going? Not that you would exclusively do that, but are there roads all the way, or are there parts that you literally have to go through mountains, woods, countryside to continue the journey? In other words, if you wanted to. If you wanted to drive it in a car, could you go? In a car, I, I think the only place where there's no road is the Darien Gap between Panama and Colombia. I see. I see. Well, this is very impressive, Jerome, and thank you very much for yeah. checking in with us. And, um, you know, c- please stay in touch, and particularly as you get really close. By the way, you said December. Are you, You're not talking... Uh-huh about this December, you're talking about a year from December. When do you think you'll achieve the goal? No, this December or uh, January uh, uh, 220. I have one more question, and it's only a half a joke, but when you're riding back, oh, oh, are you going to ride back Uh or or are you flying back? Uh, Right now, I I have very good morale, so uh, my plan is to ride a little bit, take the bus a little bit, take take the boat. Uh, I'll see when I get down there how tired I am. Yeah. What's going to happen when you reach the American border if Trump's still president? No, I mean it. How do you... I don't know. (laughs) They're going to stop you at the border. Can your bike go over a wall? Probably. I got like. It's I a, have a, a pretty long beard right now, so they probably take, think I'm a Taliban or something. Oh, there you go. man. Hey, Jerome, is, uh, are you still able to use the tent that I sent you, or are you on to other? How's your equipment holding up? I, I had to patch it a little bit recently, and I uh, fabricated some. I, uh, I made some uh, kind of tarps to close the windows because the, the, the weather is really cold around here, so I haven't have the chance to try it yeah uh with the windows closed but uh i'll see if it works i hope so i don't i don't like to change stuff and buy new new to just consume stuff and throw away i'd like to use it all the way sounds good well i'm very proud that at least a piece of uh my former gear is with you uh on the way to the uh end of the earth you're you're one of our heroes, Jerome, so keep on riding and please stay in touch, okay? Okay, thanks very much stay for Stay safe. Me. All right, Jerome. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
Man, you know, I, I, I'm one of these people that feels that human beings need people like Jerome, and we've talked to a few others here who do remarkable things, to do stuff that we can't do, that we're not yeah. going to do. Yeah. But this guy's taking it's really years cool. to do yeah. this, and yeah. he's perfectly suited for it. He physically can do it, obviously. He's got the courage to do it. He has the know-how to do it. Yep. And he has a job. He sounds like a wonderful guy. Stops and just Actually, volunteers after a Actually, that is a job he can do. Yeah, he can do that. And I don't know whether, well, I imagine he could go into, David Proust could tell us, because this is the work that you do at Ambient Studios, and... A panoptic media. Yeah, why don't Jimmy you get on the road uh, and get out of with us? <laughs> Instead of but always you coming could, around here and bothering us. <laughs> you could go into a studio <laughs> and you could record something and they could simply email it to a client, right? Yeah, it's pretty mobile nowadays. So it doesn't really matter where you are necessarily. Yeah, you can go to pretty much a site on the internet and find any voice bank that you want. And you could just pull up, you know, somebody with a country accent or somebody like him who speaks French. Yep. It's from Montreal. It's amazing. Well, yeah, it anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. It really I'm is impressive. So glad yeah. that he, because uh, he made contact with me, and now we're, we're back on it with him, and we'll follow him uh, on. If you, you know, just pull up a map on the Internet, I did it today, and looked at Caraz, C-A-R-A-Z, Peru, and then you can just look at the geography going down. Yeah. Like he said, he'll go through Bolivia, and then he's going to jump over to the west and go down through Chile, because that's a little thin piece of, land that runs all the way down oh, yeah. the west side of Argentina and then he'll cross the Andes and finish up in Argentina. It's an incredible story. I wanted to mention one other thing and we've got, by the way, coming up Ohio Valley Salvage. We had them on last Woo! week. They are really good and we've invited them back. They've agreed and we're going to ask Jerry to talk in a minute about a really interesting thing. A, a kind of a food fight going on between President Donald Trump and his uh, Fox, his Trump News Network, which is Fox News, and when they're fighting again, that's like a family food fight. That's one. That's off the Jerry Springer show. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I wanted to mention something. Um, I got involved. Uh, I'm an educator by trade, yes. as you know, and I've done that my whole life, and yep. I have a passion for it. It's deep in my soul. And I always wanted to. Always when I worked in education. Uh, I wanted to work with uh, kids that were the, the lost children, the people that others didn't want to work with. So there, you couldn't find a case hard enough that I wouldn't think that I could save yeah. that kid. I was stupid. That's naive. Yeah. No, no. I thought I could save yeah. everybody, and I set off to try to do that. And I got this idea in the last year or so of uh, working in a prison, and I'm in a situation in life where I could do that as a volunteer. Yep. Use my skills and go into a prison. I got invited to talk in a prison. I uh, won't name it, but it's in the Kentucky system, medium security prison. Uh, inmates are everything from murderers, uh, some life, many lifers, uh, sex offenders, just a lot of really kind of bad stuff, obviously. And they're paying their dues. They're in prison. They didn't get over on anybody, and they're they're being punished. And once they're in that zone, they tend to be forgotten because people yeah. say, well, they, they did their thing, so that's what they deserve. And so I've been volunteering for the last, I don't know, seven months or so, and I'm doing a class in critical thinking. And by the way, it is an amazing experience because now I'm sitting around a table with, they're all guys, 
all different backgrounds, economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, it's a racial mix, Native Americans, African Americans, Caucasians, and we are reading uh, short original works, the classics, if you will, original documents, uh, Gettysburg Address, Declaration of Independence, and we analyze them, and we do the Socratic method. Lately, I've gotten into uh, teaching them about existentialism. What's cool about this is that we're doing the most intellectual stuff you could do. There frankly isn't anything in the area of literature and philosophy yeah. that's any harder nuts to crack than the stuff we're doing. And in various street dialects, these guys are grappling with this stuff. And it's yeah, amazing. That it must be cool. And yeah. now we're about to start a second class on poetry writing. I've not written a lot of poetry in my life, but I've written a little bit. And I know a lot of songwriters and aren't all songwriters. David, you're a musical guy and you've trained in music, Xavier University. Uh, that's poetry. If you're going to write a song, you're writing a poem. Yeah. And then you're adding another element, which is music, which frankly might make it a little harder. So these guys, uh, and there's a literary magazine called Sky Tower, and there are some poets that publish there. And I'm now going to gather the interested guys who want to write poetry, whether they've been doing it, thought about doing it, never did it, but want to do it. And we'll see what we come up with because it gives them a voice in a very charged, confined setting. And as Wordsworth said, poetry is a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings recollected in tranquility. That's the, yeah. the famous romantic poet Wordsworth, British poet, and that's how he defined poetry. Well, that applies perfectly to guys sitting in a prison. Sure. Because it's all emotional expression. It has right. a cathartic value, and it could be fun. And my vision is maybe, and I found out there's an organization called Between the Bars, there's already an organization that solicits prison poetry. And the really good stuff is really good. Yeah. Because it is this spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings right. recollected in tranquility. So um, I find this to be very exciting, and, and, the, uh, and it might be the right time because there is this movement. Even Donald Trump has worked on prison reform, and this is the one thing yeah. I'll give him credit for. He deserves credit for this. He was able to corral some Republicans who normally wouldn't be into that. Yeah. Democrats always would be. Yeah. And they got something passed. It might be minimal, but maybe it's a starting point. But there is an appetite in America these days to kind of let's act smarter than we have been. Let's just don't salt men and women away and forget about them. Right. Let's get them into society, but let's rehab them so that they can come back in and do effective things. And let's save some money. And there's a little bit more uh, feeling of uh, looseness with parole boards to let some people out that they normally haven't. So I feel that it's all kind of part of this prison reform movement. But uh, I'll keep you posted because the end of this is if there's some good poetry that comes out of this, I'm going to say to these guys, and I don't think there are any rules, I'm now becoming a certified volunteer in the yeah. Kentucky prison system, so I end up with a credential and I've sure. been properly vetted and properly trained. And I'm always checking rules because the last thing I want is to have them say, you can't come back here anymore. Right, right. You violated something. And even if yeah. I say, I didn't know I was violating it. 
that I'm hopeful that I could bring a poem or two to this Jerry Springer podcast. That'd and, be great. And read one or yeah. two and, yeah. and put it on our website and, and give these uh, men a voice that's even beyond Sky Tower, the literary magazine within the prison. That's a great idea. So anyway, um, and it's, uh, you know, very... And I, it's, and I mean this. You think of these things, which never would have crossed my mind, which is, is just great stuff. I mean, it's so humanitarian. It's so there's so many pluses to it, and you constantly find that. I mean, I you know, you, that. you're not very good looking. We know that. I understand. <laughs> damn, you've got a good conscience. How would you say my skills are as a booker? Do you remember you when are I the booked worst us for the Whispering have, Beard Folk if Festival? If you had been my booker in the beginning, yes, of your career, yes, it would be a different career. I would be sitting outside this coffee shop asking for a couple of bucks. Yeah. I have if a couple you were bucks. My you booker, need a couple that bucks. That was my future. <laughs> that would be your future. Hey, um, we've got a food fight going on between Donald Trump and his favorite people, uh, the Donald Trump News Network, which is Fox News. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I love the reaction that's coming about because of that. Uh, just for people who haven't been on the planet, uh, you know, Fox News, the cable news, is uh, basically a, an arm of, uh, of the Republican Party, and particularly now, not so much an arm of the Republican Party, but an arm of the Trump presidency and the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency. And, uh, and it drives most Americans, not those that are, you know, his core base, um, but virtually everyone else, it drives people crazy. When you say, oh, that's just Fox News talking, everyone immediately knows what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, Trump watches Fox News virtually all the time. It's the first thing he does in the morning, which he admits this isn't someone reporting on it. This is him saying, you know, he gets out of bed and he watches the Fox morning show, whatever that is called, and then uh, he watches the Fox cable shows at night, I don't know when he finds time to be president, but he's always watching Fox News, and he gets ideas from them. Or he calls Sean Hannity, their friends, and uh, says, Sean, this is what I'm thinking. Why don't you go out and talk about that? So, and the other day on Fox News, one of the reporters there, and this is, we're not talking about the Fox Network, we're talking about the Fox News, which is a separate entity within the... Fox Empire. But that entity, um, one of their reporters was, they've started, because a presidential race is coming up, one of their reporters started to interview some of the Democrats. And by the way, when we talk about Fox News in a disparaging way, it is important to separate the journalists who happen to work on Fox, who do the news, they probably have a conservative bent, but they're legitimate um, journalists, and that's uh, Britt Hume and Shepard Smith, Chris Wallace. These are people with wonderful credentials. They are real journalists. And they get upset when they get lumped together with the primetime cable news opinion makers, which are Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, and Sean Hannity. Those guys do their opinion, and they you know, carry um, Trump's water. But the reporters, the people that do the news, don't want to be lumped with them. Well, one of the reporters was interviewing some Democratic um, officials. 
And he got upset that Fox News was giving a play to a Democrat and then a coverage to a Democrat and then got upset when Fox News reported the poll, uh, the poll which showed every one of the major Democratic candidates running in the primaries, at least the top four, uh, no, maybe the top five, all of them were beating Trump. Uh, Biden was blowing him out of the water, but even the others were beating him by six or seven points, and that's um, Elizabeth Warren and um, uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, even uh, Peter Buttigieg. Uh, so they were all beating Trump, which drove him crazy that they would put that on the air. So he tweets, and I'm quoting here, uh, quote, this is Trump, we have to start looking for a new news outlet. Fox News isn't working for us anymore. This is what he's telling the American public. Don't watch Fox News anymore because they're not working for us. Well, the reporters were outraged by that because this is their career. This is the, if they don't have credibility, then their careers are done. You know, Trump won't be president forever, but these guys are still young enough to have journalistic careers and they don't want to be smirched by him. So they answered back, um, quote, we don't, uh, we don't work for you. Um, my job is to cover you, not favor, uh, you know, not fawn over you. So this is the fight that was going on. And let's face it, Fox News, the evening part of the news, the prime time, it is a branch of the Trump presidency. It's a revolving door. All the people that went from the, Fo from the Trump administration who are now working for Fox, including Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the yeah. press secretary, is now working for Fox. I mean, it's, it's blatant. It's not even, well, that person may have a slant. It was blatant. The person who was lying from the podium is now going to you know, lie on Fox News. And then, of course, Fox News early on, the magic of Roger Ailes, who created this, um, with their slogan, fair and balanced, you know, it was with a wink of the eye because Roger Ailes knew exactly what he was doing. He was ticking off anyone who was left of center by calling it fair and balanced. Mm -hmm. But the whole model, which was genius commercially, which is find angry white men, and that is enough of an audience that you could sell advertising to and make a ton of money. And that is the whole economic plan of Fox News. Okay, so the rest of us are outraged by Fox, and every time you know, Trump talks to them or they talk how great Trump is and all that, we go crazy. But it's worth taking a moment here and to say, Fox, in terms of journalism, is not out of bounds. Newspapers have always been tremendously biased one way or the other. As early as 1800, Jefferson running against Adams for president, each of them bought a newspaper and wrote under pseudonames stories about the other one, horrible stories, scandalous stories. 
And that has been the case. You, get a, you buy a newspaper, you get a newspaper that just puts out your propaganda and rips the other side. The Spanish-American War, the Hearst newspapers literally got America into the Spanish-American War in 1898 by drumming up, or it was the beginning of what they called yellow journalism. Get us, you know, yellow being describing the people that, uh, you know, they hated. We got to go to war. We got to protect America. And the Hearst newspapers did that. And the Pulitzer, which now we call the Pulitzer Prize, the Pulitzer papers did the same thing. And then in um, the McCormick was anti-New Deal. Uh, all the newspapers, Chicago Tribune, all the papers that the McCormicks owned. So newspapers have done that. I remember even in the days that I was in politics here in Cincinnati, you had the Cincinnati Inquirer, which was totally a Republican newspaper, unabashedly so. And the editorials really moved to the front page in terms of their coverage. If you were a Democrat, you knew you wouldn't get covered in the Cincinnati Inquirer unless it was in one of the back pages in a very small article. So back then, they also had the Cincinnati Post. Now, in fairness, the Cincinnati Post went the other way. So if you were a Democrat, Cincinnati Post would put you on the front page. In New York today, you have the New York Post, which is obviously right-wing paper. And then you have the New York Daily News, which is a very liberal paper. So except for, let's say, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and a couple of other papers in America, I don't want to leave out any, but which journalists really respect and you get the top quality if, if you're going to be a newspaper reporter, newspapers are biased. So along came television. And the reason we're shocked by Hannity and Fox News is because we weren't used to seeing television news being biased. Why? Because when television came into real being, commercial being after World War II, you had to have a government entity, which was the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, you had to have someone control the airwaves, otherwise the frequencies would be messed up. You had to have someone regulate what frequency your television station is allowed to be on, because otherwise another station could basically knock you off the air by just mixing up that frequency. So the FCC was created to regulate television. And since in the early days there were only three networks, virtually all of America got its news. It was the first time. There was no newspaper ever that literally covered every day the whole country. There was no USA Today even. So the only entity which every American got their news from was one of these three TV stations. So there was a feeling that if the whole country is going to get their news by someone in front of that camera, which was the most powerful thing ever, we thought, we have to have some regulation. And so they had the equal time provisions. So television was, as best as a human being can be, unbiased. You had Walter Cronkite. That's the way it is. You had Huntley and Brinkley. Television news was unbiased. If you had someone give an opinion on a television station, it was never the newsman. 
or news, well, they didn't have newswomen back then. There was never the newsman. It was the station manager or the general manager that might give an editorial at the end of the newscast. In terms of local news, it turned out, coincidentally, having to do nothing with this particular reason, but I wound up being one of the first anchors. There was a guy in uh, Chicago. But uh, other than him, where the anchor of the news also did a commentary. And I started to do that in Cincinnati in the 80s. But that was a business arrangement that suddenly took over. It wasn't because we were trying to make a point. But the point was, television news had to be objective. And you had equal time provision. So if you had a Republican on, you had to put a Democrat on for literally the same amount of time. No matter what the worth of each side was. But then came cable news. And with cable television news, that wasn't on the airwaves. That was literally a cable. So there was no government regulation of it. There was no reason to worry about frequencies. And since it was a wire, cable news, which started with Ted Turner and CNN in 1980, all of a sudden, television news, cable news, could be opinionated. They, they didn't have any regulations. And then Roger Ailes comes along and, as I said before, creates this model, let's go after the right-wing, you know, white men, um, and that'll be our audience, and we'll make money doing that. And only, you know, only right-wing people or very conservative people on the air so this is new to us suddenly in terms of a generation, suddenly seeing cable news so ridiculously partisan. And that's why we get so offended by suddenly seeing Fox News do, which, frankly, to be fair, Fox News is doing exactly what newspapers have been doing forever. Now, what about Trump picking a fight with them? This is just my theory. I have no particular evidence. My theory is Trump is insecure. So no matter what bravado he puts out there, you know, he gets angry when someone says something bad about him because he's so insecure. There's no confidence in himself. And he dreams every night that he might not get reelected. It's why he has to go and speak at a rally in Alabama because those are the only people that will cheer for him. And he needs to have that support. So he thinks about what happens if I lose the next election. And he knows, he sees the polls, never once in his presidency, never for one single day did he have a favorable rating among the American people. He lost to Hillary by three million votes in the popular vote, and every poll, he's never been higher than 45%. So he's never been above water. There are always more people that don't like him or would never vote for him than the core that would. So he thinks, gee, I could lose the next election. Well, he's not going quietly into the wind. So what is he going to do? I believe he's going to do what he talked to Roger Ailes about before Roger Ailes passed away, and literally three weeks before the 2016 election. If you remember, Trump and Roger Ailes had a meeting. 
And the meeting was about, because Trump thought he was going to lose in 2016. There's no secret about that. He admits that. He thought he was going to lose to Hillary. He was shocked the night that he won. So the plan was that Roger Ailes, who was fired by Fox News, Roger Ailes was fired by Fox News because of um, uh, treating women that worked there, you know, um, badly and all the money they paid out and all of that stuff. So Ailes gets fired. But Roger Ailes didn't want to go quietly away either. So he and Trump talked about when they lose the election, they would create a new, and Trump would provide the money, a new network called Trump, you know, Trump News. And they would get some of the Fox people to leave Fox because Ailes still had good connections with Hannity and Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and all of them, he could get those people to leave Fox News and come to Trump News. That was their plan. Well, no one knew that Trump was going to win, so that went by the wayside. I think this civil war that's going on within Fox News is exactly what Trump wants, because if he loses the next election... The very next day, he's going to call Hannity, he's going to call Laura Ingram, he's going to call Tucker Carlson, and he's going to try to get these people away from the other Fox people, the journalists, who have been bad-mouthing them. And all of a sudden, Trump can say, I can pay you whatever you're getting paid there, I can even pay you more. I have a following, it's going to be enough to make money on, you don't need 50% of the people to get great television ratings. So we'll start the Trump news. You heard it here. Trump loses, Trump news. It's a really interesting theory, and, and not, it's very believable, actually. All right, we have Ohio Valley Salvage back. Hey! Give them a warm up. Oh, hey. <laughs> uh, members of the band being uh, uh, Mark Kretcher, Ben Franks, Ben Knight, Chris uh, Novi, and uh, we had them on last week. Uh, they did a great song, Lost Decade, written by Mark Kretcher. And uh, tonight, they're going to do a song called Cleaner Blood. This one was written by another band member, Ben Franks. And uh, we'll talk a little bit on the other side. Here we go. Ohio Valley Salvage. Careful, you don't want to get that Bob Dylan sound. Yeah, there you go. That's a joke. Come on, y'all. <laughs> no. <laughs> there ain't no such thing as a banjo tuner. <laughs> so, uh, y'all know what a nosy pepper does? No. No. It gets jalapeno business. Uh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> He's a kindergarten teacher, it's all right. I hope you're sleeping through the 
Song by Ben Franks, Ohio Valley Salvage. Uh, we said it last week. We'll say it again. You guys are really good. And uh, it, by the way, is this how new is this band? Has it been around for a while or about two years? About two years. Okay. Yeah. And uh, they're from the tri-state region of Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. Great. I mean, Cincinnati. half of us are from Ludlow, so. And half of them from Ludlow, Kentucky, where uh, Folk School Kentucky is, and where I live, and where we do this podcast. And uh, they're going to be part of a project coming up in early October called Blink. If you're in the greater Cincinnati area, and it's something actually worth traveling to, it's this amazing show where they project. It's the one where they project all the visual stuff on the sides of buildings. Correct. Last year, it drew like a million people. It's the biggest festival, I think, maybe in the history of the city. Correct. It's, it's, it was huge. Uh, the um, it was not only was it visual, but it was uh, a lot of interactive stuff. Yes. So the audience could get involved. Kids were involved. Street uh, corners, bands. Street it's all corners. very formal. I mean, uh, it's all. It's not. Well, I played it. I played it last year with the. Or 
I don't know, last, I feel like it was last year with the band, two years ago, two years ago with the band up in Finley Market, just like on the ground and yeah. people walking by, there was uh, people everywhere. It was, it was amazing. amazing. It was and awesome. as a participant, as a, a viewer, a patron, uh, because we went, you would just walk all or gra- jump on a streetcar. Streetcars were, the streetcar was spot packed. on the streetcar. I know they were packed. <laughs> And that runs north, south in Cincinnati, running from over the Rhine, which is where Finley Market is, this historic, very European shopping market, all the way down to the riverfront area called the Banks. And you could just walk or ride and just stop at corners and see different, as you say, as multimedia, a visual thing, and then music on all different styles of music. Amazing. So yeah, very happy to hear you guys are part of that. You can hear... Ohio Valley Salvage, uh, their website is ohiovalleysalvage.com. We're going to ask you to take us out on down by the riverside. Jerry uh, performed back in the, what do we think, the 80s or 90s? With, uh, it was the heyday of Mark uh, Kretcher. Yeah. Might have been 70s even. How long have you been performing? 1975, something like that. So you've been doing this for 40 years. Uh, I had a donut hole in the middle where I raised some children and kind of didn't do it for yeah. for a while. And I'm, you didn't raise all of them, just some of them. <laughs> just some of them, yeah. They're... Mark, you you uh, you were part of rock and roll in the Cincinnati area back in well the 1970s or yeah. even like when did you start playing music? Uh, I don't know, fifth grade maybe. Okay. Oh, that's great. And uh, I mean that, that was the kind of the birth of rock and roll, 1950s and 60s and. Some great groups, and uh, yeah, I mean, and it's gone through an evolution, but there was the foundation of rock and roll, which I lived through and remember, and played in a rock band in high school and a folk band in college. So I came, I just sucked, so I didn't do anything with it, but, but it was a blast. So you have, you have good uh, roots. What is the, just one quick yeah. question. What are the, because we get bands here all the time, what are the mechanics? Like, you, you've got a band now. Do you rehearse three times a week? Do you, in other words, what, how does it happen? Your friends, you know each other. Hey, why don't we put a band together? We're looking for a bass player. We need a drummer, whatever. So it gets together. Now, what do you do? Because you all have other jobs, I assume, or am I wrong? Correct. So you all have other jobs. So do you, is there a regular rehearsal schedule? Is there? How do you do it, And what is that? Yeah. It's. It's once a week at this point. Um, yeah. Uh, in the beginning, I think we did some, we did a couple of uh, two two uh, week rehearsals. But uh, I mean, y- you get to a certain level with, with guys like this, and you just they do your it. homework. Yeah. You can yeah. record a song on a, on a guitar in your living room and send it over, and everybody's got it in their head, got and it. they do their homework and their prose, and and you can roll with. Uh, it. That's really good, and and yeah, I get it. What you're saying, you get the right now. guys, men or women Absolutely. with you. I've thrown, it's a pretty quick study. That I've written out a set before. We did a set at uh, Neltner Farms a couple weeks ago, and uh, on the set I wrote like four chords. Yeah. And I was like, "That's a new song. Here we go." Yeah. Because I trust these guys. Yeah, yeah, it's really wow. good. Yeah. Really good. Okay, cool. Take us out on Down by the Riverside, and Jerry will uh, jump in on a verse. Here we go. Ohio Valley Salvage.